I don't know how I started in higher education, but I do know it was a learning curve, making U-turns, wrong turns, going around in circles and hitting stop signs until I started asking questions, asking faculty, scholars, even myself looking for answers. So now they call me the... The Navigationalist. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I am Jimmy Cheffin, the host of The Navigationalist, and this is our first episode, so welcome, welcome. And let me start by saying the purpose of this space is to create a community for underrepresented faculty to have crucial conversations about navigational strategies. I found it my duty to discuss with professors, administrators, scholars, researchers, coaches from the East to the West and out of the country even, from four-year universities to community colleges, from HR to admin in search for navigational strategies for underrepresented faculty. And I ask the right questions because the questions come from you. Today we have three special guests. We have Dr. Melissa Martinez and Dr. Juan Carrillo and Dr. Michelle Harris. This is going to be an interesting conversation. And let me remind my podcast audience, if you would like to submit a question to a future uh, navigationalist, please visit our website, greenbookforhighered.com. Okay, let's get to it. And my colleague, my friend, Dr. Carolina Bailey, will read the questions from the cafe. Hello, my name is Dr. Anonymous. I am new to the college. I moved from the East Coast to this West Coast college. I'm okay, I think I'm okay. I'm the only faculty of color in my department. What are some things I should think about? I really want to be successful. Do I really need a mentor? Do I need allies? Thank you, uh, Dr. Anonymous. You know, this one is interesting to me because I don't feel like I ever had an official mentor, but now since I'm thinking about it, I probably had several unofficial mentors. And I'm looking at the monitors and everybody's nodding their head up and down. All right. Dr. Martinez, please. So yes and yes. And um, yes, you definitely need a mentor, but I would not say one. I would say um, mentors. I always think of, you know, not there's never going to be one person that's going to be the end all be all. So you really need a support system of folks. And you need, I would say you need to have mentors both within and outside your program or department or college. Uh, you need folks to support you that are within your field, but again, outside your institution. Um, and you need a mix of both, I think, white allies and folks of color. Um, so why would we need like several mentors? So that you can also figure out who you can go to for what you need, right? Like, because oh, not yeah. everybody's going to be different in, in terms of the kind of uh, mentorship that they offer. And in many cases, you know, I think of the kind of mentorship I've had and it's been informal mentorship, kind of a one-time spot on. Sometimes it's um, continuous mentorship over time. I've had mentors that, that I've, had since grad school master's degree, right? Um, that have kept up with me in, in different ways and I've kept up with them and reached out. Um, so you definitely need those folks. Um, I think of some of my own, a lot of peer mentors that I have. And um, Juan knows a lot of these folks because we have in common folks that you maybe go to grad school with and you stay in contact with. Um, 
so I, I think of them as a scholarly familia, right? Like you need to develop your family within your right. professional family with the folks that you know you can really count on. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Melissa Harris, please. I guess the only thing I would add um, is um, defining a little bit the difference between those, right? Yeah, right. because, um, you know, I think we use the words a lot. Of course, an ally is somebody who is going to proactively kind of offer you help or support in achieving your goals, right? And and usually we think of them of having, of, excuse me, as having our best interest at heart. And what is interesting about allies is that um, they often just emerge, right? It, it is through knowing these people that these people that we come to see them as allies. Um, mentors are somewhat different in that oftentimes we choose them either deliberately or kind of tacitly. Um, mentors are people who I think we usually think of as perhaps some kind of experienced advisor who perhaps will set aside some time to talk to us, to give us advice, to counsel us. And usually we think of them, I think, as having greater experience and some wisdom. And what's interesting is that we go about choosing them, as I said, right? So whereas allies emerge, mentors, um, we choose. They don't usually choose us. You know, and listening to you three and thinking about mentors and allies, I'm, I, I'm thinking about I need a mentor, right? I need a mentor. And then one thing that pops in my head is how do I find a mentor or a good mentor? How do I identify allies, right? Are there steps to this? Is there, are there, is there a criteria that I need to write up, right? Right. Well, again, allies, I don't know that we always pick, right? I mean, I think, I think we come to identify people as allies, right? We say, mm, this person is working from a position of integrity or ethics or is willing to call stuff out or seems to have um, to lend a voice to causes that are important to me or that promote the underdog or whatever it is, right? So I think those people emerge. In terms of choosing mentors, I think that we come to oftentimes understand people as being wise. They have something to say to us. They speak our language. We've listened to them. We think, oh, I could learn something from this person. And though I may never approach somebody and say, would you be my mentor? Maybe it's that. And we see this with students all the time. Every office hour, they're in your office, right? And you're not just talking about an assignment. They are talking about life, right? Um, So in that way, that is a, a silent request for mentorship. And they're not going to be there if you don't have time for them. <laughs> they're that not going so to be there true. if you slough them off. And I think, think about the people who you have looked up to in your life. Maybe they never called themselves a mentor, nor did you actually label them as such. But maybe there were elders in your community grandparents, aunts or uncles, people who are part of a religious community, people who we just thought of as having good things to say. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Dr. Juan Carrillo. 
I remember one time I was um, I, I was somewhere. I was in some clinic or something. I, my wife was about to have a baby, and we were getting some equipment or materials or consultation, uh, just getting some stuff, getting the pregnancy situation squared away. And this lady at the counter uh, looked at me directly in the eye with no emotion and no, no kind of no like ease to the voice, and she said. She said, I noticed that you and your friend in the back keep switching languages a lot. And are, have you looked into that? <laughs> wow. Or something like, 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 have you noticed you switch languages? Like you have an issue, you have a pathology or something. And it was such a random comment in the middle of uh, this exciting moment of having a friend over in North Carolina, getting ready to have a child. I remember that, that sense of like, wow, like, is this not, a typical thing to do here or where can I do this? Or am I supposed to self silence? Um, so then I thought like, who do I talk to about this? Right, who in right. this space is, is going through this? And one of the things I realized that, you know, the idea of a mentor sometimes uh, looks a particular way, usually as someone senior. But one of the things I realized in places where these things were happening a lot in a place I didn't know well, it was new to me is that, my very own students were mentoring me. Hmm, wow, interesting. So the students who were Latino, students of color, students that had experienced similar situations, they, they broke bread with me, whether it was over basketball, over coffee, carrillo, let's have lunch. There is one Mexican spot. If you go down that way 30 miles, I think it's decent. I think you'll like that place. And let's break things down. You know, let's build community. So it was my students who became like allies and kind of were like, the ones that documented or understood the historical memory of place. They were, you know, North Carolinians of color who maybe had extra levels of knowledge of place that really helped me adjust. Wow, I find um, that thought interesting. Um, students, uh, faculty, and staff of color uh, mentoring each other, sharing navigational strategies. That is an interesting, beautiful thing. Thank you for that. And then the other thing I think, I think of another story where I showed up to a conference right before I showed up to UNC as a first-year faculty member. And I remember a mentor from UT Austin telling a professor from UNC Chapel Hill something along the lines of, take care of him. Make, make sure you look out for him. And I, was, I wasn't supposed to be in that conversation. I was walking by. But I always remember hearing that and thinking, what's that about? And to make a long story short, when I was at UNC, I had a professor who had a lot of power and a lot of respect in my college serve as a formal and informal mentor who taught me a lot about the space. And whenever I needed to have a sense of solidarity on an issue, he stepped up. Can I... <clears throat> I was just like, can I add that? Yeah, I wanted to course, just reiterate. Of course. You know you can't raise your hand. <laughs> I'm like, can I just add? Uh, I, I concur with everything that's been, been shared. And I was going to say, I think um, to both uh, Michelle and Juan's point, I think um, so I was going to note that about how I think many professional associations and conferences and, and even in, in some universities, um, I think universities more and more and in, in colleges are making efforts to create like formalized, you know, mentorship programs or spaces or, uh, you know, create spaces where um, mentorship could occur. And so I think taking advantage of that, even knowing, however, that just because you get paired with somebody that may not 
work it out. You know, that might not work out. You may not really, you know, um, jive with that person or, or um, meld with that person. Um, but it could put you in contact with other folks who you could potentially, you know, um, have a good relationship with. I, so I was going to add that. Um, and to, you know, I've had these different um, experiences both as a mentee and a mentor. And, and I had um, a student once just come up to me from another institution at an ARA after a, a session and said, I really like your work. And could you be my mentor? <laughs> um, and we have now been, you know, we've been chatting and I've kept up with her. Um, it's been like five years. And um, i included her in and put her in contact with some other folks. Um, so I, I think my, the big takeaway for me is you never really know where that mentorship or allyship is going to happen. And often it happens very organically, but you also have to be open to um, putting yourself in, you know, putting yourself in those spaces um, again, even if it's something formal, but you might not necessarily hit it off with that person, but you could meet other people. So I just wanted to leave with that. Right. Like, of course, somebody will want you to be there. Uh, Melissa, you are awesome. All of you are awesome. There is so much wisdom on this show. So when you are thinking about a mentor, observe that person. Ask yourself these questions. Do you respect or admire that person for their achievements or their experience? Are you able to work with that person? Is he or she, are they available to guide you? Can this person actually guide you towards your professional goals? Is that person happy in their career? And if you are thinking about identifying your allies, the easiest way is to see who is working on issues similar to you. Issues that you are interested in, right? Watch from afar and ask yourself these questions. Who is doing something about the issue on campus? What are they doing? How is it going? Which strategies did they find effective? Is there some way we can collaborate on this issue? Wow, this is great. And now we're off to our second questions with Dr. Bailey at the cafe. Hello. My name is Dr. Gonzalez. I love working for my students. I cannot wait to serve on diversity-related committees or projects. I'm so excited. Well, I mean, I was excited. Other colleagues of color told me I would be exhausted by the end of the semester and that my work would not be respected or recognized. Is that true? Any tips? Sign overworked faculty already. Oh, <laughs> big, big sigh. Oh, no, no, the big sigh is because the trap of diversity work, there is so much to do. And we can oftentimes get trapped into extending our teaching work to outside of the classroom, right? And get trapped into thinking that we have to teach our colleagues who ought to know all the things that we want them to know so that we can get treated with some respect and with some equity, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that these scenarios, every, every faculty of color in a predominantly white institution, we know this kind of thing. I'm sure that both Melissa and Juan will speak eloquently to this. So I'm just going to carve out a tiny piece of, of a response. And it is this, 
especially for faculty who are on the tenure track, remember the goal. Remember the goal. Tenure. Um, And and again, all the responses will be the the quote unquote right and true responses. So I'll just speak to that. And and so I will just reiterate how much of a a pit of distraction diversity work can be. And while many of us have the heart to do it and also the knowledge to do some of it, um, when you are a, a junior faculty member, um, you're going to be um, invited to be a part of things for a variety of reasons. And um, I think that I will just leave you with what one of my brilliant colleagues, Juan Battle, um, it, it told me a long time ago. Juan said, remember the goal is tenure. You must develop a narrative of response when you are invited to do all of the committee work that you will be invited to do. Absolutely, faculty have to to do service work as part of showing good citizenship and as part of building a tenure portfolio. So I am not advocating that you can or should say no to everything, but you need to choose wisely. But as you turn things down, remember that you have every right and to couch your response in a very positive way, your negative response, your no response in a positive way. Thank you for thinking of me. Um, But I'm teaching X and Y, and I'm working on, tell them, boredom with a little bit of your scholarship, right? <laughs> and, and I am writing this grant. As, and as much as I would love to partner with you in that, on that committee, at this stage of my career, I really need to prioritize the teaching and the research that I have to do. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I agree definitely that you should have that uh, response ready, um, so to speak, when you um, are so thankful for the opportunity and thank you for uh, thinking of me, um, however, but, right? Um, I, I do also think um, just in some of my work and talking to, to faculty, some of my work uh, with faculty of color, that it's often in engaging um, in some of the service work um, that is focused on equity, that is focused on diversity, where folks really thrive, not just thrive, but like they find their passion or they find, you know, they, they get back as much as they put in sometimes. Um, and so to, to that point, I think if you do really want to engage in this work, as, as it seems, this person, um, you know, the anonymous person um, or no, the person had a name um, really wanted to engage in this work. Um, I think it's being cognizant of how um, how much of the work you can do, right? Don't spread yourself too thin. So if you're going to do, you know, be strategic in what you do engage in. So it doesn't mean you can't engage at all, um, but being strategic. And I think also figuring out a way, I was always told this, and I, I've often figured out a way to do this in a couple of ways, but write about it. So if you're going to engage in the work through, you know, do some service, figure out a way to um, write about that um, experience so that you can also um 
or incorporate it into teaching, right? They're, they always say there's a way that you can engage in, in work that will both serve in terms of service, teaching, and research, then then definitely um, do so. So I think if, if you're if you're able to do that, that's that helps you um, in that tenure and promotion, right? In, in navigating that. But so that that was something off the top of my head that I um, was thinking. It is important to remember uh, these acts of of resistance capital we exert usually in our faculty service, our participation in shared governance, our volunteer leadership is how we challenge inequality on campus. And it is my opinion from reading and talking to scholars and faculty and other people on campus, honoring resistance capital moves us closer to being an inclusive campus. What I think about in terms of this question, in some ways is connected to the previous question, and that in the service work, I agree with Melissa, oftentimes I have found that it's where my, both my sense of home comes back. So sometimes you question why you're even here in the sense of there's so many toxic moments that sometimes you have to encounter at various faculty meetings or as you're trying to make something happen and it turns out the way you didn't expect. So I think in the service work, sometimes you could find that reimagination and that sense of hope again sometimes. But I think the way I see this connected to the, one of the previous questions is that if you find mentors at different layers of the power structure in your institution, when you do have to use a narrative of no to some of those situations, you can't do everything, when you do have to use those no's, uh, they can maybe come back down the line to support you if anything comes up politically. You know, so I, I personally, my friend who's a principal in Oak Cliff, Dallas, Texas, who I consider a brother, he calls it the barbecue. He says, I go, where are you going? He's like, oh, I'm going to the barbecue. And I go, well, what's this one about? He's like, well, so-and-so is going to be there. So-and-so is going to be there. And they need to know me and I need to know them. That's just the way it works as a principle of color and a high stakes testing situation where their notion of education is in the system is very different from mine. I need, I need allies, I need mentors, I need support folk down, up and down the, the, the line of command. Um, so I try to have barbecues or meet up with folk who are in my college and outside of my college in ways that I think would develop like real authentic, authentic relationships, but also, um, help to kind of engage those moments if there ever is a situation where I need some support. I love that barbecue idea. I mean, if you all can see me, I'm smiling right now thinking about the barbecue, providing a time and space to share navigational strategies. So podcast audience, if you're having trouble saying no, let me help you out. Let me give you some steps. First, understand when to say no. Saying no when you don't feel like it at work is okay, but think about it if it's affecting your performance. But there's nothing wrong with protecting your time and your energy, right? And ask yourself, why is it hard to say no? There are many reasons to say no, but the common thread is that we're all concerned about the outcome of saying no. It's normal to worry about the decisions that you make. But if you are protecting your energy, you are doing the right thing. Accept your superpower of saying no. Accept it that other people are saying no too, right? You are not being cruel. All right. Now, um, 
We're come to the end of our podcast show. Could you give our podcast audience a piece of advice, please? Don't let the environment get inside of you. <laughs> Sometimes those environments are really tough. The, the academy is not easy. Um, the road towards tenure and promotion, not easy. Scholarship is not always easy, nor is teaching, etc. And um, sometimes it, it can really take a toll, as Juan said, on our mental health, our physical health, etc. A boat and water go together as long as the boat stays in the water and the water doesn't get in the boat, right? So we really need to take care of ourselves and we can be in our our respective institutions, our respective environments. Just don't let that get inside of you. Take care. Of you know, I, I definitely uh, struggled um, when I was on the job market and had some, I had like a, you know, I've, I've written about it even, had kind of a little breakdown at one of my first ARAs because I was feeling this struggle of, of kind of that bicultural situation, feeling like, I don't know if the academy is a place for me. It, be, it felt inauthentic to me in some ways. Um, it felt like I was having to, like if, like if I needed to sell my soul or be somebody else in order to fit in, so to speak. So I think my my piece of um, advice or takeaway is do you. <laughs> you do That's you perfect. and you, um, you, while yes, you have to uh, learn kind of how to navigate academia and some of the practices and its values are not necessarily going to align with your own cultural background or upbringing, um, know that there is a way to make it your own, to create your own space within it um, so that you do feel your authentic self and you don't feel like you are having to be someone that you're not. Um, and uh, yeah, so I mean, it's, it, it's, a it, there is success. Um, and for me, that is success, right? Like um, being able to be your authentic self in this space. Um, so I'll, I'll leave I'll leave that bit of wisdom. <laughs> yeah, and I would I would echo my colleagues and just say, don't forget where you came from. Draw from those spaces and stories. Try to create place and space in conferences, in classrooms, in the parking lot. I've had hours and hours of conversations at parking lots that have felt so redemptive and redeeming. Maybe it's a restaurant, uh, wherever it is, um, collaborate with like-minded folk to make your home, even if at times it feels incomplete, or even if at times the feelings of loss and frustration may weigh you down. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a blast. Yes. Hello, this is Navigational Report 1491. So now, I can't help but think about how can I enhance equity and inclusion on campus without getting burnt out? And what policies can be implemented to prevent such a thing? And I'm also thinking about who are my allies and who are my mentors and when is the next barbecue? Well, the point is that events and relationships like this help us become oriented to a campus because it's a time to share observations and navigational strategies. Well, this has been a blast. On our next episode, we will have Dr. Michael Benitez and Dr. Alex Allentopic to share some more navigational strategies. See you on our next episode 
of the navigation list.